that after God's Son suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified and was buried and descended to the dead. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. From there, from where? From the right hand of God the Father Almighty, He will come. He will come even as He has gone from us, riding a cloud. Acts chapter 1 says He will descend in like manner. He will come to judge, to render a final just verdict, and He will come to judge the living and the dead, to render a final just verdict over every single person who has ever lived. And so teaches the text that has just been read in our hearing. In Acts chapter 17, Paul the Apostle is in Athens when we pick up the storyline here. He's on one of his missionary journeys going from town to town and city to city telling people about Jesus and the forgiveness of sins that is to be found in Christ. Athens, as you could probably pick up from the reading, was a very religious town. There were idols everywhere. Religion was a big thing. It was, it was a city that was known all over the world for being spiritual in a certain kind of way, for being pluralistic in the sense that there were many gods and all gods were pretty much equal. It was a very religious climate and Paul walks into Athens and takes a stand in the middle of the city and he calls out to the people and says to them, you must take God seriously. Closing his message with these words from verses 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now God commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. As I stand in front of you this afternoon, I was just momentarily, uh, a moment ago reminded of uh, something that happened in the life of Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, before his conversion to Christ. He was studying and preparing uh, to be a Roman Catholic priest, and it was his day for ordination, and part of the service and ceremony was an observance of the Mass, and 
uh, in Roman Catholic theology during the Mass or Communion, the bread actually is said to turn into the body and flesh of Christ and the cup, the, the fruit of the vine, into the very blood of Christ. And, and Martin Luther was there and he had prayed over the host, prayed over the bread and over the cup. And, and in that moment, as history tells us, he froze. He, he couldn't say anything more. He couldn't proceed. And the reason he said later was that in that moment, according to his belief at that time, he was holding in his hand the very body of Jesus. And it so overwhelmed him with awe, overwhelmed him with fear that he couldn't speak. Friends, I I feel something of that here this afternoon. I tremble to be where I'm standing right here. Because this text of Scripture and the themes and the truths and the realities that it presents to us are the very words of God. And they are fearful words. They are frightening words. They are words that every single sane human being must reckon with. And it's so very tempting to gloss over them. So very tempting to sidestep them. But then that wouldn't be love, would it? For there are times when we must hear the truth that we don't want to hear. And so we come to this text and in our hearts, may we be saying, Lord, speak to us for we need to hear your voice. We need the truth. Let's approach the text by trying to answer five questions. Who will judge? When will he judge? Whom will he judge? How will he judge? And how are we to respond? Question number one, who will judge? In chapter 17 and verse 31, you'll want your Bibles open in front of you because we're going to take each of these points right from the text. It says, because God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man, referring to Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, he is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who is going to judge? Well, God is going to judge through His Son, the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And this God-man, this man, Jesus Christ, is uniquely credentialed by God. The text says, first of all, that God has appointed Him. God Himself has chosen Jesus to judge us. And it says that God has given assurance of this by raising Him from the dead. Jesus is the only man who has ever been raised from the dead never to die again. And God, in raising His Son from the dead, has said, this is the man. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, He is the man, He is the one and only man who has the credentials and has the right to judge all other men and women and children because He is my Son. He has lived a perfect life. He has died on the cross for our sins. He has been raised from the dead. He is my man, God says. God is going to judge the world 
through this man, Jesus. Who is going to judge? Jesus. When will he judge? Verse 31, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. God has fixed a day. There is a day scheduled. It is a day marked in red on the calendar of heaven. It is the day, what is called in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. It is the day of the Lord. There is a clock ticking toward that day. There is a countdown going on even as we sit and stand here this afternoon toward that day. And all the denial in the world cannot slow down the coming of that day, cannot stop the coming of that day. The day is fixed. I think I've told you before about how little I enjoyed school as a child. Uh, I best part of school was recess and the bell at the end of the day. I lived for those moments. My grades suffered as a result. And so, again, I think I told you about this before. I had a habit in elementary, uh, the elementary years, a habit of taking papers that my teacher returned to me with bad grades on them and stuffing them inside my desk. And I would do this all term long. It was a, a stuff and hide approach to life. And, and I, so all term, all semester, papers stuffed in the back, covered up by books in the front, stuffed in the back. What's the one problem with that approach to life? Report card day. Report card day is coming. And the stuff and hide approach to life doesn't work in school and doesn't work in life. The day is coming. The day is coming. Psalm 75, at the set time, God says, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. The fact that this day is fixed means that it is certain. And the fact that this day is fixed means that there will be a moment, my friends, when it's too late. There will be a, a moment when that day passes and there will be no more days to come. In the words of Revelation 6, in that moment, everyone will call to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of God for the great day of His wrath has come and who is able to stand? In that moment, everyone will realize when that day comes, there are no more days. And they'll cry out to the mountains, cover us, shield us, We'd rather die under a mountain's collapse than to face a holy and just God. 
And you say, well, when's that day coming? It's been 2,000 years now. Um, it is coming. And it will come for you and me one way or another before very long. He will either come on that day, come to us for that day, or we shall go to Him when our day comes to leave this world. Hebrews 9, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Who will judge the exalted, ascended Lord Jesus Christ? When will He judge on that day that has been fixed by God? Whom will He judge? Our creed says He will judge the living and the dead. In verses 30 and 31, our text puts it like this. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. He commands all people everywhere to repent, which implies, which means that all people everywhere are going to stand before His judgment seat. He is going to judge the world in righteousness. There is not going to be a single person who has ever lived who will escape that day to come. Not one. Someone's here saying, well, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. Aren't there people in this world who don't even know about God? Aren't there people in this world who have never heard about Jesus? Aren't there people for whom for God to judge them would be unjust? But you see, part of the point of Acts chapter 17 and the verses that precede the text that we're looking at in verses 30 and 31 is to show us that people, even if they've never heard of God, are accountable to God because at the end of the day, they know about God from creation. Everybody knows that God exists. Look at the text. Look at verses 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul, Paul goes into Athens and he walks around the town and looks at all these various images and he comes upon this altar on which there's an inscription to the unknown God. Which means that the Athenian people had some awareness of a God they didn't know. There's some fascinating history behind this. Paul was probably aware of something that had happened in Athens about 500 years before this. It, it involved a philosopher uh, and wise man named Epimenides, whom Paul actually quotes over in Titus chapter 1 and actually calls him a prophet. So he seems to have been a man, not a Jewish man, not a man exposed to the Scriptures, but a man who had received some insight from God. And ancient historians tell of a time 
when the people of Athens were struck with a plague and none of the sacrifices that they offered to all of their gods took the plague away. So they heard about this man from the island of Crete, Epimenides, who seemed, according to reports, to have some kind of spiritual connection with God. And they called him to Athens, and they presented the situation to them. We have this terrible plague. It's not going away. We have offered sacrifices to all kinds of deities. And according to the historical record, Epimenides said, there must be a God that you don't know yet to whom you must offer sacrifice. And so the people of Athens built a number of altars, and on these altars they inscribed simple words, agnosto theo, to an unknown God. And by the time that Paul arrived in Athens 500 years later, most of those altars had been destroyed over time, but one remained. And Paul arrives, and he walks in, he says, I'm going to tell you about the God that you know you don't know. It's a fascinating thing missionaries tell us. There are literally dozens, if not hundreds, of stories of missionaries who go into parts of the world where the Bible's never been preached, Jesus has never been talked about, and they find people who believe in a supreme creator God. And often these people tell about how they had received visions from this supreme God that somebody was going to come and tell them about a Savior. And these people, every one of them, have come to that faith in some kind of supreme God through the witness of creation, through the witness of nature. They looked around them and they said, all that's out there, all the beauty, all the complexity, all the wonder, all the glory, all the goodness of creation speaks to the fact that there must be a Creator. There must be somebody who put it all together. And Paul goes on. He says in verse 28, we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. What's Paul saying? He's saying that we as human beings, when you look at us, you can tell there's something different about us. You know? We're not like the animals. We're not like images of stone. We're not even, you know, the sun in all of its glory is still obviously a created thing that just kind of goes around in a circle from their vantage point back then. And, and, you know, we on the other hand, we have dignity. We on the other hand, we have a sense of the moral. We have a sense of right and wrong. We, we, we are the offspring of God. And Paul, Paul says, if we're the offspring of God, not in a physical sense, but the creation of God. And, and we have dignity, and we have honor, and we have majesty, and we have worth. Then obviously, there must be a God who has infinite dignity and worth and value. And so the Athenians are reminded that they knew about this God. And because they knew about this God, they were accountable to this God as is every human being who has ever 
lived. Nobody can ever claim to be ignorant. Nobody can ever say, I didn't know about God. God never told me anything about Himself, my friends. God shouts His glory and His goodness every day of your life. All you need to do is open your eyes and open your heart. And you will know that He is. Whom will He judge? He will judge all people everywhere. He will judge the world. Which leads to the question, how will He judge? How will He judge? Verse 31. He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. In righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. There's, there's two key words here, folks, as we, as we think about the judgment to come. The first is the word judge itself. He will judge the world. The, the word that Paul uses in the Greek language speaks of sifting and sorting and assessing. He will assess the world. He will test the world either for approval or disapproval. It does not say here that God has fixed a day in which He will react or in which He will jump to angry conclusions or a day on which He will fly off the handle. No, it is a day on which He will judge. He will with discernment and exactness Test everyone. And the text says what? He will judge the world in righteousness. In righteousness. What's righteousness? Righteousness is that which is done in the right way. It is that which is morally and ethically and judicially right. It is justice. It is equity. It is a verdict and a sentence that's handed down with exact and precise fairness. Making sure that no one, hear this, especially if you're inclined to say that you don't believe in a judging God. Hear this. God would never, He could never judge anyone more harshly than he or she deserves. God is a just God. He never does anything wrong. Every judgment, every verdict, every final outcome, every sentence on Judgment Day will be exactly and precisely fair. That's important. It's important because there are parts of the Bible which if you read them carelessly or if you forget this truth, might make you think that Judgment Day is just going to be one wild outburst of God. There are texts such as those cited by Jesus where He talks about the place of judgment, hell being a place of deep darkness and great weeping. Or Romans 2, a place of tribulation and distress. Or 2 Thessalonians 1 says that the righteous judgment of God will repay those who afflict 
others with affliction themselves. And God is going to inflict just vengeance and eternal punishment in flaming fire upon those who do not know Him. Revelation 20 says that if anyone's name is not found in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. These are, these are images. These are metaphors. This is language that communicates that judgment day is going to be a terrifying day. It's going to be a frightening day. And there are some who have read those images and they've gotten the impression that, that God is, is just going to, there's just going to come a day when He's fed up with it all. And He's just going to take everybody and just throw them into hell and let them suffer. Kind of like the first grade teacher I had. You ever have one of these teachers where they get so fed up with a misbehavior in the classroom that they decide to punish everybody? You're all staying in for recess. My friends, that's not just. That's unjust. Now, unless the teacher's trying to teach corporate responsibility for human behavior, which maybe she is or he is, I doubt it. The reality is that for all to be judged equally, even though not everyone has sinned equally, would be unjust. Judgment Day is not going to be a divine temper tantrum. Judgment Day is not going to be God just venting, throwing, going into a rage, a sudden impulsive rage. No. Judgment Day is going to be in righteousness. Judgment Day is going to be a day when every single person is going to be tested and assessed for what he or she has done. And the punishments handed out are going to be in degrees of suffering and hardship based upon the sins committed. God is going to create it going to rule over a day in which he judges the world with righteousness. So you say, how's, how's that going to work? How's that going to work? Well, can, I, can I give to you several factors that are going to go into God's judgment of you and God's judgment of me. Believe it or not, there's as many as 12 of these factors. I'm just going to run through. Don't, don't worry. Not a long point on each one of these. I just want you to hear these. Is God on that day when Tim Shorey stands before God. If, if Tim Shorey were not in Christ, not a Christian, and I was just standing before God in my own life and in my own sins, what would be the factors that would go into the final verdict and the punishment? Number one, God will consider deeds done. Revelation 20 And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. We will be judged for the deeds done. If those deeds are not in conformity to the law and the will of God, we will be judged for them. Secondly, we'll be judged for words spoken. 
Matthew 12, 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified. By your words you will be condemned. Words. Your out external deeds could theoretically be all lined up and good. But if your words aren't, you'll have to answer for them. Third is knowledge received. Luke 12. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. What Jesus says here, is that those who know the Master's will, those who know the will of God, but don't do it, will receive a stricter punishment than those who don't know the Master's will. The flip side of that, number four, is a level of ignorance. You remember Jesus' words, Father, you can repeat this, right? Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. God in His mercy and God in His fairness and justice knows when our sins are done in ignorance. And He factors that in. He knows when we don't know better. He also knows when we should know better. I was thinking about this. For having raised six children, I'm very much aware of the reality of willful and deliberate ignorance. How kids have a way of keeping themselves ignorant. Thinking that it will keep them from being accountable for their actions. If you, your child fails to do the chores because you never told him to do the chores and what those chores are, that kind of ignorance is not really his fault. But on the other hand, if you tell your child that there is a note on the counter with a list of chores in the note, but he chooses not to read the note, then that's culpable ignorance. That's ignorance with guilt attached to it. God's going to look on Judgment Day and say, ignorant either willfully or innocently. A fifth factor is age and capacity. Isaiah 7, we read about children who before they know how to refuse the evil and choose the good, God knows when someone is old enough and capable enough to know better. And He takes that into account. There are opportunities enjoyed. Matthew 11 Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of His mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you. Listen to this text, folks. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. 
And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. That text is terrifying. You all know, I am sure, about Sodom and Gomorrah. You know about the sins of those cities. You know that they were, and Ezekiel said, one sin for which they were condemned was their failure to take care of the poor. But in the context we see as well that it was their sexual immorality. It was the twistedness of their sexual morals. And, and Sodom has come down through history as a, as a kind of symbol of sexual sin. But Jesus says to the people of His day that if Sodom had heard about the things you've heard about, they would have repented. And it's going to be more bearable for Sodom on Judgment Day than for you. What are you saying, Jesus? Jesus is saying that on Judgment Day, people are going to be judged not just for their actions, but they're going to be judged for the opportunities that they had to receive the truth. And there will be people sitting in churches like this who on Judgment Day are going to be far worse off than the Sodomites were because people sitting in churches like this week after week after week have heard the Gospel, have heard the truth, have heard about Jesus. They're looking down their long noses at all those sexual sinners out there, but Jesus says they are worse sinners than the sexual sinners are. And they are going to face a fiercer judgment. Why? Because they have... They have had greater opportunities. They've seen my mighty works, Jesus said. And in Luke's account, he says the same thing just by saying to his disciples, if, if they reject your words, it'll be harsher on them on Judgment Day than on Sodom. So if you hear the Gospel over and over again, you keep stiff-arming it. Oh, my friend, all you're doing is making that day all the more severe for you. God will take that into account. He'll take motives and intentions into account. He, he is going to ju judge our thoughts and our motives and our, those things that, that are behind our action. He's going he's to take into account our weakness, our duress. He's going to take into account the damage that is done to others through our actions. I, I'm terrified when I read James chapter 3. Let there not be many teachers among you, for as such you will incur a stricter judgment. Do you folks realize that on Judgment Day, I'm going to face a standard in some ways very different than you are. As a man who teaches and preaches God's Word week after week, I'm going to give an account to God of the words that I've spoken, of the messages that I've given, of the counseling that I have given and if there is damage done to others, if, if I have failed to be faithful, 
going to give an account to that. God is going to take all that into account. He's going to take into account willfulness and deliberateness. I could give you text after text for these things. You know, He's even going to take into account, this is scary, He is going to take into account the standard of judgment you have used against others. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? You know those times when you sit around with your little gossip circle and you you start judging others and you start condemning others and faulting others and you pick at this and you pick at that and you pick at the words and you pick at the actions and pick at the attitudes? Jesus says you're going to be judged by the standard of judgment that you impose on other people. He's going to bring all that back. And say, how did you measure up according to your own standard? I don't know about you, but that terrifies me. It terrifies me. I will answer, in a sense, to my own standard. So do we fault others for being lazy only to be lazy ourselves? Do we treat others for, as being lesser because of their color or class or intellect or some other difference, well then we're going to be treated as lesser on that day. Do we fault others for saying mean things and then say mean things about the people who are saying mean things? Do we gossip about gossips? Do we hate on haters? Do we murmur about complainers? Do we yell at our children about their yelling? Do we dissect and read the worst into what other people say, particularly other people we don't like or agree with? Jesus is saying on that day, He's going to dissect and read the worst into everything we've said and done. The standard you use to judge others God will use on us. There's more. Time doesn't allow. But you see, the point is this. The point is this. God's judgment is going to be done in righteousness. God is going to take every single factor into consideration and then pronounce His verdict and his sentence and the degree of suffering and sorrow experienced will be directly proportionate to the guilt of our lives. So with all of that in mind, I wonder, do you still have a problem with the judgment of God? Are you here today and just say, I... I, I don't believe in that kind of God. Why not? Why a problem with this? He's he's going to do it fair. He's he's not going to give anyone any worse than they deserve. It's going to be in righteousness. 
perfectly fair, perfectly equitable. Why are you still struggling with the concept of a judging God? Could it be because you don't want fair? Could it be because fair is exactly what you're afraid of? Could it be that the idea that God is going to judge you as you deserve is terrifying? It terrifies me when I look in the mirror and look into my own eyes and look down deep into my heart. I see stuff there. I don't want to be treated as I deserve. The idea of a fair and a just God is terrifying to me because fairness is what I don't want. I'm not afraid of God being unjust or unfair. He can't be unjust or unfair. It's impossible for God who is holy and good and righteous to ever do anything unfair. But God will and can do the fair. And so this should lead to a final question. How are we to respond? What are we to do? If, if you look at your life like I look at mine and you see, you see all the junk and all the sin and all the rebellion, all the opportunities that you've had that you've squandered, all the knowledge about God and His Word that you have in your heart but you've disobeyed, all the times that you've deliberately done the thing you know you shouldn't have done, all those times, you remember these times, many times, countless times, when your conscience has been saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, and then you go ahead and do it. If you're looking at yourself like that and you're seeing your own sin and you're realizing God is a holy and a just God who will punish sin inflexibly and fairly and in righteousness, your response should be, what do I need to do to escape the wrath of God? How do I escape His justice? How do I avoid this? What do I do? Paul tells us. What does he say? He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to what? Repent. What does that mean? That means turn your heart and your mind away from self and sin. Turn toward God and trust in Him. In chapter 16, a man approached this same Paul and cried out, what do I have to do to be saved? How, how can I be saved from the wrath of God? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So there's the answer, folks. You're sitting here and you know at this moment you're still under the just wrath of God. You still know you deserve hell. You still know your sins are mounting up in the sight of God. And one day there's going to be report card day. There's going to be judgment day. You know that's where you're at right now. Here's what you do. Repent. Turn from the sin. Turn from self. Turn to God and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Why believe on Him? Because He died for your sins. Because He paid the punishment for your sins. Because He took your place. Because He saw the wrath coming. And He stepped in between you and the wrath of God. And He absorbed it in His own person on the cross. He said, I'll take it for you. I'll take it for you. 
Believe in me. Trust in me. You're, 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 that's it. You say, I don't, I, don't have to, I don't have to obey all the commandments. I don't have to go to church six times a week. I don't have to give $10 zillion. I, no, repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is as wonderfully simple and grace-filled as that. You say, I don't like messages about wrath and judgment. Well, neither do I. But I'll tell you what, I wouldn't be a forgiven sinner right now unless somebody somewhere had told me about the wrath of God. You know why? Because I never would have seen my need for a Savior. I never did see my need for a Savior until somebody warned me about the wrath to come. You see... God is showing mercy to you right now. If God was just this fierce, vindictive, angry, impulsive deity, He would have wiped you and me out a long time ago. But you're here, aren't you? And this afternoon, you have in song and prayer and preaching, you have heard a message about a holy God, yes. A just God, yes. An angry God, yes but a merciful God. A God who is saying it's still the day of salvation. It's still, there's still time. That day hasn't arrived yet, has it? And until that day comes, today is the day of salvation. So you, right where you are, this is amazing. This, this is amazing. The gospel's this free. Grace is this free. You... Some of you, I know, some in this room came in here under the wrath of God. Not converted, not believing in Jesus. You came in lost. You, you came in still under a condemnation. You can leave forgiven. You, you can leave sure of your salvation. You can, you can leave, to use a Bible word, justified, accepted. Why would you leave still in your sins? Right where you are, you can, you can pray. You can, you can say, Lord, save me. I'm one of those sinners Tim was talking about. I deserve your wrath. I deserve your judgment but I trust in Jesus that he died for me. So Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm claiming your promise. You have promised that whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. You have promised that if, if I confess my sin and repent of my sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I will be saved. And God, I don't think you can lie. You've made a promise to forgive me if I repent and trust in Christ. And so, right where you are, right now, you can pray and you can ask God to save you. And then you'll walk out those doors being able to say in the words of Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for me because I am in Christ. Jesus. 
believe the Lord wants us to, I'm going to ask Leo to come up and close. I believe the Lord wants us to close this afternoon with uh, some reflection and some prayer that this might be a day of mercy and salvation for many in this room.